It was what I call a dateless church service. A dateless church service. What do I mean? If an archaeologist from the future had unearthed a tape recording of the service I attended in church on this particular day, he would have been unable to determine exactly when the service took place. Oh, the very existence of a tape recording would enable the time team to determine the century it happened in. But nothing on the tape itself, let alone, especially the hymns chosen, would enable even the experts of CSI, if you watch the television program, to give a more precise date when the service occurred. And yet in the week before the service, I recall, the Nepali royal family had been murdered by the crown prince. And on the following Thursday, there was a general election. It was the one between Tony Blair, William Haig, and Charles Kennedy. But none of this featured in the 75-minute service in this particular church. The only person mentioned was someone called Bill, who the leader of the service, whose name we also never learned, ascertained from the congregation, was now out of hospital after his operation. The date was, in fact, June the 3rd, 2001. And the church I was visiting will remain nameless. But it was a dateless church service. Does it matter, you ask? Don't churches meet together to worship God and to hear his word? Yes, that is so. And in this particular church, we sang hymns, we prayed to God, we read from the Bible, and we heard a very orthodox, sound message based on the Bible. But is that all that is necessary for a church to be described as healthy? A New Testament church. Well, for an answer, for an authoritative answer, we turn to the New Testament and to the letter we've been studying on Sunday evenings under the title, Building a Healthy Church. It's written by a man called Paul, an apostle sent by God, called by Jesus Christ, written to a young colleague called Timothy, who is pastoring a church in the Greek city of Ephesus. And as we come now to chapter 2, we discover something very important. That a healthy church is a praying church. And we also discover how to pray. That our prayer should address specific situations in which we find ourselves located in history and time. But with one supreme goal in mind in our praying. That people everywhere should hear and respond to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's our subject this evening, what I've called gospel-centered praying. Gospel-centered praying. So turn in your Bibles, let's read and reflect and learn and put into practice what we find there. It's page 1192. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews. If you reach over, grab one, ask someone else to pass you one. We always study the Bible carefully. You need to have it in front of you so you can follow what is being read and what I'm going to say about it with God's help. 1 Timothy 2, just seven verses. Here's Paul writing to Timothy. To Pastor Timothy telling him 
about prayer in church. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and those in authority, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Now there's more about prayer, we'll come to God willing, the next in our series. But as you look at these verses in front of you, look very carefully at what we learn about prayer, about public prayer, when Christians meet together. And what I want you to notice is, you will see there are two strands or dimensions of gospel-centered praying, which link together, they contrast, but they also complement one another. And we need to get our heads around them if we're going to pray intelligently and become a healthy church. Uh, Very simply, in the first four verses, notice the inclusiveness of God-centered prayer. In this section, you will see the word all repeated again and again. All, all, all. But then as we turn to the next three verses, the focus shifts to the exclusiveness of gospel-centered prayer. So let's look at each in turn so that we might inform our own prayers, especially our corporate prayers, as we seek to build a healthy church. Now, first of all, then, let's look at the inclusiveness of God-centered prayer in verses 1 to 4. As we come to chapter 2 of this letter, and of course, when Paul wrote this, he was not writing a novel. He didn't say, and now chapter 2. He's writing a letter. There are no chapter divisions. Uh, There are no verse divisions. These were all added, as most of you will know, much later to the Bible. And the headings in our Bibles are also added by the translators. So it looks as though when you come to the NIV, here's a new section. The NIV, if you've got our church Bibles in the NIV, the New International Version, as good as anything else around, No translation is perfect. They've added a little bit at the top to tell us what's coming here. Instructions on worship. Sounds like a new subject, doesn't it? Until you read a little more carefully. Look carefully. There's a little link word here in the original language and in English. I urge then, first of all, that prayers, requests, so on, be made. There's a link with what's gone before. So if you were here in the last in our series, and if you weren't, you can download it or get a DVD of it. Um, What has gone before? Well, the last time we studied the previous verses, the title was A Matter of Life and Death. And the focus was on the fact of this wonderful, trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. And we suggested that because of this, you're either saved by Jesus or you can end up shipwrecked. Pretty important stuff, wouldn't you agree? So if this is such a vital issue, what then should we do about it? 
What is the priority for a church? And here's the interesting bit. Paul is in no doubt as he affirms the priority of prayer. Look what he says. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made. First of all, in the original language, Greek language, doesn't mean just first in order, but first in importance. Here's the most important thing. If people are either saved or shipwrecked, if Jesus is indeed the saviour who died for all people, the first thing we should focus on. I suspect if we were giving some young pastor advice on things of most importance in church services, we would focus on songs and sermons. But important though they are, in a healthy church, prayer always must precede preaching. If it does not, then preaching, even by the most gifted and powerful preacher, will be powerless. And here's something really interesting. If you've been around church for a long time, you'll know this. Where there is prayer, even a poor preacher can preach powerfully. Prayer is a priority. Now, and Paul, of course, knew this. He practiced what he preached. He actually practiced what he prayed. Some years before this, he wrote to this church in Ephesus. If you know the Bible, it's called the book of Ephesians, because it's written people in Ephesus. And in, as he comes to the last chapter, he talks about spiritual warfare. And he, he lists all the piece of armor that a Christian must put on to fight the fight. And then he comes to what uh, Pilgrim's Progress is called the weapon of all prayer. And he says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Familiar language? With this in mind, keep alert be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints, Ephesians 6, 18. And then he adds a personal prayer request for himself. He's a preacher of the gospel. What does he want them to pray for? Pray also for me that I'll get out of this mess in prison that I'm in at the moment. No, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Ephesians six nineteen to 20. Here's Paul, he's in chains. What would you ask people to pray for? Pray that I'll get out of fear. No, says Paul, pray that whenever I open my mouth, I may preach the gospel fearlessly. Because prayer precedes preaching in a healthy church. You've got plenty of chance to put it into practice over the next four weeks as a church. At least one, two, three, four, five. You'll have at least five times when you can meet with other Christians to pray for the future of this church. And the regular prayer meetings as well. Those are additional ones. So when Paul comes to this letter written again to Timothy in the same church in Ephesus a few years later, he is focusing on the importance of prayer. It's the same priority. Now notice what he focuses on, the scope of prayer. Here's the inclusive dimension. It is highlighted by the words he uses for all kinds of prayer. Requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving. Now the first three words are pretty similar words in the original language. Uh, and it's hard to separate them out. Uh, if you want to try and do it, it's kind of little nuance words, really. Request means praying for specific needs. Prayers means bringing these requests before God. Intercession means appealing boldly on behalf of others. And then finishes with thanksgiving. Let's thank God for what he did in the past 
as we look forward and pray for the future. Uh, One commentator, Philip Towner, writes, The thought is one of completeness, every dimension and action of prayer being focused on the need at hand. And such all-encompassing prayer covers all kinds of situations and all kinds of people. So Paul goes on to write about the scope of prayer, all kinds of prayer, all kinds of people. Look what he says, it's there in the text. Prayers, requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for who? Everyone. For kings and those in authority. Now notice the compass of this. Everyone means that no one is too unimportant or beneath the reach of prayer. So we can, and do in this church, pray for the elderly lady who's coming to the end of her spiritual journey, who is in hospital at the present time, knowing that God will hear and answer. But we also pray for kings and those in authority, meaning that no one is too important and beyond the reach of prayer. So we pray for our prime minister and the first minister in Scotland, assured that God will hear and answer our prayers for him. Now, Paul highlights, after everyone, kings and those in authority for a specific reason. It is not because they're more important people to God. Gordon Brown is no more important, or Alex Salmon, to God than you are, or I am. Now, he highlights them here, not because they're more important, but because they carry more authority and can wield more influence in our society. And when he comes to pray for such people, kings and those in authority, he says such prayer for such people should be gospel-focused prayer. Now you need to really see the connection. It's so important. Paul tells Timothy what we should pray for those in authority. Look again, it's in the text. For kings and those in authority, what do you pray for? that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Praying for peaceful and quiet lives means pray for a peaceful, well-ordered society that is free from external war and internal civil unrest and strife in society and neighborhoods. Why? Because in such conditions, that's the best way in which Christians can live in all godliness and holiness, in full observance of religion and high standards of morality, the New English Bible translates it. Now, if you stop there and the text stopped there, you'd think, I know what Paul's praying for. He's praying for a quiet life for Christians. And reminding them and the authorities under which they lived that they are no threat to the well-being of society but rather a benefit to it. Now, while that is true, Paul has a different focus when he prays for peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. As he goes on, notice again the text again, not only what churches and Christians are to pray for those in authority, but why we are to pray this for those in authority. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Praying for a peaceful society is a good thing because it pleases God, not just in and of itself, but because it provides the best environment in which God's great plans can be carried out, which are the salvation of all people. Now, God in his sovereignty can and does save people who live in societies that are wracked by 
war or civil unrest. And he can and does use Christians in such situations who are the victims of persecution and suffering. But these are examples of where God works through what is evil to fulfill his purposes. What he says here is what is good and pleases God, what is better, is that God's purposes are fulfilled for societies of peace and stability where Christians can live out their faith and so provide the best environment for people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ because God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Notice again the repetition of the word all. All men, it doesn't mean all males, the Greek word, two words for men. One is for men as opposed to women. The word here is for men, uh, all people. He says God is the saviour and he wants all people to be saved. That has always been the desire of God's heart. Just for example, go back to the Old Testament. Here's God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their wicked ways and live? And now what pleases God in the new covenant beyond Ezekiel that he looked forward to is the good news of Jesus Christ. And God longs that all people should be saved. Now notice carefully, and it's really an aside, it doesn't mean that all people will be saved. Sadly, God graciously allows people to spurn his offer of salvation. But anyone who faces final condemnation, if you're in that category this evening, you're not a Christian, you're resisting God's will. God longs that you might be saved. It's why this church exists. It's why I'm a preacher above all else. But if you reject it, you alone are responsible. However, what Paul is doing here, he's not making some statement to make some big argument about divine sovereignty, human responsibility, and is he an Arminian or a Calvinist, if you know the terms. Rather, he is stressing that prayer should be for all people because God wants all people and all kinds of people to be saved in the best environment in which this offer of salvation can be made. It's a peaceful society in which Christians and churches are free to live out their lives for Christ. And that is why Christians and churches should pray for those in authority that they might make this possible. Now, just stop for a minute and think about who Paul is telling them to pray for here. Saying to these Christians in Ephesus, pray for kings, kaisers, those in authority. Who's the top authority that Christians are going to be praying for when they meet together? It's a guy you may have heard of. His name was Nero. He's a megalomaniac. He was paranoid. He was cruel. He was ruthless. And he was no friend of Christians. But still, says Paul, you pray. In the assurance that the sovereign Lord will work out his plans through society and through those in authority. Even pagan rulers as he did in the past. Through a Babylonian king like Nebuchadnezzar, whom he called my servant, Jeremiah 25 verse 9. Or a Persian emperor like Cyrus, who remarkably the Lord called his anointed, his Messiah. So Christians, though all Christians everywhere, should pray. How much harder it must be for Christians living in Zimbabwe and a guy like Robert Mugabe to pray for him. Or in North Korea for King John Il. To pray that they and we may be able to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. 
And where there is no godliness and holiness, where there is no peace, we go on praying that the evil king may change his ways, assured that the sovereign Lord, the real king, the real saviour, can also change any earthly king if he does not ultimately change his ways. But the ultimate the ultimate motivation in such prayer is that God our Saviour wants all men to be saved. That's the inclusiveness of gospel-centered prayer. Now again, if we stop there, we might get the wrong idea. But what Paul moves on to say next both contrasts and complements this as he turns to the exclusiveness of gospel-centered prayer. Now there's another important connection here between this section on prayer and what went before. If you've been with us on the series, you'll know that Paul writes at the beginning of this letter, he's got a big concern. There are some false teachers who've come into the church in Ephesus who come from a Jewish background who taught that salvation was limited to Jews and those Gentiles who wanted to live and were prepared to obey the law of Moses. So Paul counters this by stressing, as we've seen, the inclusiveness of salvation. That God our Saviour wants all men, not just Jews, to be saved. But then he, then he affirms the way in which God saves people. Look at the exclusive way of salvation. He begins by saying, there is one God. Every Jew, of course, knew this. They said it daily in their creed, the Shema, from the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. No doubt the false teachers in Ephesus would have said amen in a loud voice. There were no other gods beside our God who is the God. But as one writer, Gordon Fee, comments, what Paul is stressing here was the fact that one God not only meant there were no other gods, but that he is therefore the one God of all peoples. And this one God has made one way by which all people might be reconciled to him by appointing one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I see the connection. There is one God, but there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The word mediator is a, is a Greek word from the business world. It means a kind of agent or go-between. If you're a football fan, you know what football agents do? Well, maybe it's not a good illustration, but, but basically they liaise between a player and his club to get the best terms, to bring two parties together. So the authorities in AC Milan, there's, a, there's some mediators trying to get David Beckham to stay there, not go back to work for, in America for MLS Galaxy. Okay. Now, let's come to serious issues. Paul affirms that Jesus is the one mediator between God and human beings. He's the only agent qualified to fulfill this role. For he is God, yet notice what he says, he is the man, Christ Jesus. He became fully man. He lived without sin, alone. He's the only person, therefore, qualified to bring together sinful human beings and a holy God. To bridge the gap. He's the only agent who can do it. And how did he do it? Well, Paul tells us. Look again at what he says. And he did this by one act of salvation. Who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The word ransom, mediators from the Greek world. Ransom is a word from the Hebrew, Semitic world. It echoes the words that Jesus spoke of himself. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, that's himself he's speaking of, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, The word ransom describes the price that is paid on behalf of someone else, someone who acts in place of someone else in order to secure their freedom. Jesus died on the cross in our place to pay the price we could not pay in order that we might be reconciled to God, that sinful human beings might be reconciled to a holy God. Theologians have a term for this, and it's important that you know what the term is because it's under a lot of criticism. The term used for Jesus dying in our place, bearing the punishment we deserve, is called substitutionary atonement. Atonement means to reconcile, to make it one. It's come under attack from professing evangelicals. One well-known Christian critiques this doctrine, the notion of God offering his son on our behalf as cosmic child abuse. That's a terrible thing to say. Why? Because Jesus is not a child. He is the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus was not sacrificed when he was a baby. He was preserved from that by God's providence. But when he became man, he willingly, gladly, look what it says, gave himself. He cooperated fully in the plan of salvation. Devised by God who is what? The Savior. So he's God the Savior who's got God the salvation plan. And his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, cooperates fully in it by becoming the ransom. And therefore is the mediator between God and men. Again, Philip Tanner. Good New Testament scholar writes, Jesus not only represented humankind, but also stood in its place as a substitute for its benefit. So Paul says, this plan, this wonderful plan was carried out according to the divine timetable. The testimony given in its proper time. Verse 6. You see, the Christians in Ephesus, he's saying to them, we don't live under the old covenant The old deal made between God and human beings through Moses. No, this is a new era. There's a new deal. There's a better deal. A better covenant. So now is the proper time, God's time, for it to be proclaimed to all people. And Paul says, unlike these false teachers, this is my authentic ministry. And for this purpose, he says, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. And a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. He said, I'm a genuine apostle, one sent by God. I'm swearing as a sincere Jew. I'm not lying. God sent me to proclaim like a herald the good news of Jesus Christ. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and to teach this faith to who? Gentiles. All peoples. Not just Jews. Good news for you guys, most of us, because most of us aren't Jews by birth. You'd be out the door now. There wouldn't be a church here. It's the good news, it's the inclusiveness through the exclusive way who is Jesus. He's the saviour of all peoples, all nations, all ethnic groups on earth. Now will you notice where the section has come from because there is a development here. It's really important. Praying for all people, verse 1, leads to what? Preaching to all people, verse 7. But gospel-centred prayer precedes gospel-centered preaching and it produces gospel-centered preaching and gospel-centered preachers now I began 
at the beginning by, by suddenly mentioning a church that had no connection and didn't pray for the world around them. There is an opposite extreme that you find in many churches in our country, particularly in national churches. We pray for governments and those in authority. We might even pray, people pray that we might live quiet and peaceful lives. But how many go further and say, because people need to hear the good news of Jesus? Because there's only one God and one mediator. There's no other way. And without that way, you're lost. You're saved or you're shipwrecked. Tanner again comments, quite apart from our need to wake up to our own tendencies to insulate ourselves from the outside world, a rather elite club of the initiated, we must set our prayers for government officials in relation to the task of mission. It's gospel-centered praying. Healthy church. It's what we need to be. Praying in these days. Praying about a future pastoral direction and pastor for this church. What's the most important thing? That you like the guy or he dresses the way you like or he likes the music you like or whatever? No, the most important thing is, is he a gospel-centered preacher? Are people going to get saved in this church through his ministry? Or whoever we choose. That's why it's a matter of prayer. And to pray for gospel centered We're going to do it in a moment. Some people are going to lead us as we pray for these things. Let me conclude them. Nearly, nearly towards the end, we're going to move on. Let me place our prayers in a much wider context than just praying for those in authority. You see, you need to pray gospel-centered prayers in every situation for all people. Let me give you an example because it came home to me this week and I'll explain why. Think for a moment of the tragic events, the very tragic events that have occurred in recent days in Victoria and Australia. You've seen the heart-rending pictures of people whose homes and even loved ones have been consumed by fire. Now, the question I want to ask you is, how should we pray for them? What should we pray for them? Well, on Tuesday, we received an email from the Baptist Union of Scotland which said, please find attached sample prayers for you to adapt for use in your prayer in your church as you remember those suffering in Victoria, Australia at this time. And there were four prayers listed there. I, just take a moment. I just want to read the prayers to you and I want you to listen carefully, filtering through what we've been saying this evening. Okay? Here's the first prayer. It's entitled, For Our Losses. Today, Lord God, we join together with all Victorians and with all Australians to pray for the victims of these tragic bushfires and for the families of those who perished. We pray for the children who will go to bed tonight without their father or mother. We pray for the mums and dads who have lost their precious children. We pray for the husbands and wives who will return to towns reduced to tears and homes reduced to ash. We pray for the families throughout our nation who have lost those they dearly love. We pray for those who survive but suffer and who bear the memory of the fight. We pray for the firefighters, police officers, ambulance officers and emergency workers who have served so well and toiled so long in such terrible conditions. We pray for relief from pain, for healing and peace, for comfort and restful sleep. We pray for patience and strength, for courage and hope to face another day and walk another mile and share another road in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Prayer two, pray for those who mourn. God, 
living the people of country Victoria, nearer to us than our next breath. Be with those who mourn this week, be in their shock, their grief, their anger and despair, that they may grieve, but not as those without hope. Forgive all the hurt they feel others have done to cause this tragedy and show them that they are forgiven. We offer you all the regrets, the memories, the pain, the if-onlys, knowing that you will surround those who mourn with your presence and heal them and us and all that harms us. And there's a prayer for medical staff. I won't read it. It's praying for those who serve, that they may know. Grant this prayer for the love of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And finally, there's a last line response of the final prayer, transforming tragedy. Listen carefully. Most loving God. In this cynical world, help your people to prove the hopefulness of existence by turning negative situations into positive ones. When we are weak, then we are strong. Help us to transform disappointment into new courage and pain into greater caring and sharing. When we are weak, then we are strong. Help us to take from this bushfire tragedy and increase sensitivity towards all who suffer or grieve and help us to treasure our neighbors all the more. When we are weak, then we are strong. Help us to use reproach for honest self-assessment and unfairness for better understanding of those who are treated unfairly. When we are weak, then we are strong. Help us in those in the midst of loss to use their dismay to discover themselves and their true destiny. When we are weak, then we are strong. Help each of us here to receive your word, even though prayer seems unanswered, and to hear your call in difficult times. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Now, I have no problem whatsoever in saying amen to all of those prayers. But I want to ask you lovingly and gently, in the face of such tragedy, is that all Christians and churches can pray? Is this the most we can pray? Is this the best we can pray? In what sense, if any, were any of those prayers, well-meaning though they are, gospel-centered prayers? In the face of such tragedy, and tragedy that may occur to us this week or has already occurred to us, you need to ask a question. What would Jesus say? Well, you don't need to speculate. In the gospel record... We know on one occasion, people came to Jesus and told him about two tragedies that had occurred in their society in recent days, in the news. The tragic murder of some of Jesus' fellow Galileans that come up to Jerusalem to worship and they'd been butchered by Roman soldiers. They also mentioned another case. A tower collapsed and 18 people were killed. Uh, those who gave Jesus the message, the news about this, assumed from their background, that this was God's judgment on these people who were especially bad people. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So gospel-centered prayers will, for example, of course include prayer for those who are suffering. But also to pray for those who survive that they'll repent and be saved. Because there is a worse fate than being consumed in a bushfire. Which Jesus also spoke about. And if you're not a Christian, you need to pay heed to. He said, don't fear those who kill the body. After that can do nothing. Fear him who has the power to cast body and soul into hell. 
They will pray that the people of Australia and the world will focus on what really matters, on treasure in heaven, which can never rust or be burned up. And they'll pray that those of us who've missed opportunities to share the gospel with loved ones, and it's now too late, will take the opportunity to speak to people in love and with gentleness and respect about the hope that we have within us that extends beyond this life. If we really believe there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and the outcome of that leads to salvation or shipwreck between heaven and hell, then we'll pray gospel-centered prayers for people in all situations, for all people. And we'll proclaim the gospel while we have time and when we have opportunity. That is not insensitive. It is the greatest act of love and it is the best that we can and should pray if we believe this book, God's Word. We need to repent of our self-centeredness, our obsession of just praying for ourselves. It's great to pray for one another. We do it regularly in this church. We need to recognize and turn back to the Lord and seek his face. We're going to do that. We're going to pray together. Uh, but first of all, let's sing a hymn that reminds us of our need for God to revive us as a church and to refocus our praying and our prayers. We're going to stand and sing. Oh Lord, the clouds are gathering. The fire of judgment burns. How we have fallen. Have mercy, Lord. Restore us, Lord. Revive your church again. Then after we've sung this song, three people are going to come and pray for us. Josh Horden's going to pray for nations and governments, for Christians under pressure and persecution. Nita's going to, my wife is going to pray for those who suffer in Australia and other ways. And then Phil Doggett, one of our elders, is going to pray for us as a church. And our focus in all of it will be gospel-centered, that we want the gospel to go out to more and more people so they might hear and So let's stand first of all and use this as a prayer. Oh Lord, clouds are gathering.